Hey guys, it's me again. If you recognize me, it's either because, you know, you've been around the Bridgetown block, you're no slouch, I used to work here, uh, or it's because you can just remember back to a few months ago, the last time I was here. If, however, we've yet to meet, my name is Josh. I was a pastor here at Bridgetown before they sent me across the river to plant a church called Van City. It's still there, by the way. Don't worry about it. Um, when I'm in Portland, people ask me about Vancouver like it's this exotic destination. Oh my God, Vancouver, yeah, what's that like? I'm like, oh, I can see it, it's over there. It's, a, it's about eight miles, you know, go check it out. Now, that I'm here indicates that tonight's teaching is one for which John Mark didn't want to take the heat. Um, <laughs> And I, I got there to this realization, uh, thinking back to the last few times I was here, uh, something occurred to me. There was a time we were working out the practices that we do in communities, and we arrived at this idea called imaginative prayer. And John Mark was really worried that you guys would think it was too kooky. Um, so he looks up at me and he says, man, you know who should do that teaching? You should. <laughs> and I was like, oh. Uh, a bit later... <laughs> We were working our way through the Sermon on the Mount. We were fast approaching Jesus' radical thoughts on money. And John Mark calls me and says, man, I just really feel like the Spirit's telling me that you need to do that teaching. <laughs> and still not catching on, I said, oh. And uh, still a bit later, there's a teaching on the calendar about the way that food connects to injustice in the world. And so here comes John Mark predictably, hey, Josh. And I said, hey, wait a minute. But then I said, oh, so here I am. Uh, and, and like I said, John Mark, he's, he ain't even here. It's his birthday, so I imagine he's like on a Star Wars-themed yacht or something like that. I don't know, I don't know what he does for... All right. all right, that was the warm-up. You guys feeling all right? You adjusted to the guest guy now? Yep, I've got more material along these lines, but we should probably move on for the sake of time. All right, turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 14. Luke 14. <clears throat> When I was a kid, Saturday morning was a sacred thing. It was a ritual. It was a, a holy time that I realized my own children will never experience. On Saturday morning, the hierarchy of the family household became reversed because for five days, my parents were first arrived, active and productive before the sun peered over the eastern horizon, while three children went on sleeping in you know, silent dread of another school day. And on Sunday, yeah, we got to sleep in for a little bit before church in my house, but Saturday was the true day of holy observance. With daylight, you know, still just a pink haze, my brother and I would creep from our respective twin beds and we would begin the ritual. First, to the TV guide. Then, we would move through the eerily silent house, careful not to wake our parents. We made our way to the kitchen to prepare the appointed feast, which for us was like Pop-Tarts and sugary cereal, toaster strudels, which are a disgusting but beautiful thing. In those days, uh, and I'm sure it, it, might work the still way, it might work the same way now, but TV Guide had this like spreadsheet in the back that was organized by day and time so you could map out how much television you wanted to watch. Uh, and we'd open to Saturday morning, 8 a.m., and then we would chart a path forward through the day with a pen. Okay, we'll have to move from this network to this network so that we could see all the Saturday morning cartoons that we wanted to watch. So that, for us, was like He-Man and the Masters of the Universe, Thundercats, Ghostbusters, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, DuckTales, stuff like that. Uh, and, man, Saturday morning cartoons were so weird. Whatever toy they wanted to sell at the time. MC Hammer even had a Saturday morning cartoon for some reason. And we would sit there in our pajamas, feasting, skipping from channel to channel, one show after another, planned, not arbitrarily, 
before noon arrived, and at noon it was over. So we'd head outside, our imaginations full, we'd explore the woods and fight space aliens and map out another fort that we'd never built. Um, and in the late 80s and the early 90s, advertisements operated in much the same way as they do today. They were largely curated and catered to particular audiences based on demographics and time of day. So the Saturday morning lineup yielded its fair share of toy commercials, images of Ronald McDonald's evil grin, you know, school supplies shaped like Stay Puft Marshmallow Man, stuff like that. But I remember this recurring ad that would always complicate the ceremony of Saturday, Saturday morning. It was something that was, at that time anyway, called the Christian Children's Fund. It was a child sponsorship organi organization, not unlike, you know, your World Vision or Compassion Internationals. And the Christian Children's Fund, the ads typically featured this kindly-looking old bearded man who would stroll through impoverished villages of the developing world where flies crawled over the faces of small children with distended abdomens and nearly naked boys and girls rummaged through heaps of refuse looking for food. Mothers rocked skeletal infants in their arms. And I would sit there and think, man, what a drag. Here I am with my Count Chocula, I'm waiting for Muppet Babies, and I'm having to confront the uncomfortable reality of suffering elsewhere in the world. Hunger while I feast. As a child born into what is, by comparison anyway, a very wealthy economic status, this reality is a near impossible one to comprehend, and attempts to do just that are uncomfortable and inconvenient. These advertisements were designed to generate results. The viewer, shocked, appalled, and then hopefully compelled, can, for the price of one cup of coffee a day, rescue a child from poverty via financial sponsorship. And that is obviously a very good thing to do. I, I understood that even as a child. But I would sit there in the knowledge that while I sat with my cereal, comfortable, in my home, enjoying my morning, elsewhere in the world, kids were starving to death, and that wasn't right. We have been in a series and a set of practices oriented around the simple, everyday notion of eating and drinking. So you've talked about the lost and ancient art of hospitality. You've unpacked the beautifully broad spectrum of what it means to be a neighbor. But as we power down the exciting speedway of rediscovering hospitality, there's something that we don't want to miss along the way. Eating and drinking cannot be accomplished without food. And food, like many good things, can become the means by which evil is done in the world rather than good. Up until now, we've been talking about partying and eating food and making friends and celebrating all very good things. And here again, good things can be abused. Now, if you're new to the Bible, let me save you an in-depth word study and let you know that this library of writings has quite a bit to say about food, actually. And one of the primary food motifs in the scriptures is God's great concern for the hungry, or that is, the poor. See, in God's economy, the idea is that those with an abundance would sacrifice their excess, even their own comfort, for the sake of those with little. God not only encourages this, He commands it specifically. Look at this from the Torah, Leviticus 19. When you reap the harvest of your land, God says, do not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Do not go over your vineyard a second time or pick up the grapes that have fallen. Leave them for the poor and the foreigner. I am Yahweh God. The wisdom literature of the Hebrew Scriptures is filled with passages like this one. The generous will themselves be blessed. Why? Because they share their food with the poor. In the book of Isaiah, God has, in context, become frustrated with Israel because her acts of religious observance are not accompanied by acts of justice as well. Look at this from chapter 58. Is not this the kind of fast I have chosen, 
to loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke to set the oppressed free and break every yoke? Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter? That last line can be translated, is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house? Which brings us to the Gospel of Luke. Now, in this particular story that we're about to read, Jesus is in the home of a prominent religious leader. He's doing his thing, eating and drinking. He's hanging out. He's partying. But then Jesus is about to disrupt the status quo. So let's read beginning in Luke chapter 14, verse 12. You guys there? You ready? Feeling all right? Still good? Zig, you all right? You just sit with your guitar in church? We all saw you up here playing it. You don't have to carry it around with you. You're talented. We get it. All right. Sorry. Thanks for that easy setup. Can you do that again next time? It worked. It was good. All right. Luke 14, verse 12. Then Jesus said to his host, When you give a luncheon or dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers or sisters, your relatives or your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back, and so you will be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. When one of those at the table with him heard this, he said to Jesus, Blessed is the one who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. Jesus replied, A certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he, said his, he sent his servant to tell those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said, I've just bought a field. I've got to go see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I've just bought five yoke of oxen. I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Still another said, I just got married, so I can't come. The servant came back and reported this to his master. Then the owner of the house became angry and ordered his servant, go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, the lame. Sir, the servant said, what you ordered has been done, but there is still room. Then the master told his servant, go out to the roads and country lanes and compel them to come in so that my house will be full. I tell you, not one of those who were invited will get a taste of my banquet." Now, again, the scene is this, a dinner party. It's on the Sabbath in the story, which is a day that included a noteworthy meal, lots of guests, celebration, all that. In fact, get this, tonight's guest teacher has himself visited Israel and dined in the home of a Jewish family on the Sabbath. It's true. Be impressed. <laughs> and I can tell you from experience, it was quite the to-do, lots of fun. Now, a caveat here, the reason that I mention that is because when I went to Israel, my wife, Abby, told me, now you can become the token pastor who finds any excuse to bring up his trip to Israel and show slides for some reason. Um, the problem with that is that I was in this tourist group that was comprised of mostly like rabid Instagrammers and their constant photo taking so bummed me out that I vowed to photograph only street cats. <laughs> so there it is, my story and my slide from Israel. Thank you. So let's get back to the scene. Jesus is at this bustling dinner party on the Sabbath. He's with a religious leader that we're told is something of a famous individual. So it stands to reason that this is really a big deal dinner. It's hip, invite-only, Instagram-worthy, you know, social club, PDX elite type of thing. And here comes Jesus, who predictably sits down at the table and begins to criticize the thing right in front of everyone. At the heart of his critique, though, is a concern for the poor. 
Now, as we've already seen, that Jesus, who was a Jewish rabbi, would share in God's concern for the hungry and the poor comes as no surprise. But there's two built-in inferences here for us tonight as we grow in the spiritual discipline of eating and drinking. The first is that for Jesus, the idea of feeding the hungry, of doing justice, is one dimension of hospitality. In keeping with Isaiah 58, share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house. Throughout this series thus far, you've discussed the way that Jesus' mission was to, quote, seek and save the lost, and that the means by which he did so was, quote, eating and drinking. Jesus is on a mission, inviting people into God's kingdom, and he is armed with the most unassuming yet powerful of weapons, the dinner table. And here, Jesus' concern for the poor exceeds just base nourishment, and it reaches out to the inclusion of the poor at the banquet of the rich. But in Jesus' story, there's a twist. Amongst the well-off, the privileged, the provided for, contentment has apparently bred complacency because the invitation goes out to the master's banquet, and it's in a manner typical of Near Eastern culture. The host would extend an invitation early in order to determine the supplies necessary for hosting. Then a second invitation would go out following the first to say, hey, all right, now it's all ready. You can come over. And here, the invitation is met with a long litany of excuses and delays and stalling. People are like, oh, I've got investments to oversee. I've got plans to work out. I've got relationships on which to focus. And interestingly, these excuses are pretty lame, if not outright insulting. For example, no one in the first century would purchase land or livestock without inspecting them first. And yet someone offers the excuse, oh, I just bought land. I need to go see it. Or or I just bought oxen, I need to go check them out. So it's like the first century equivalent of, oh, I have to wash my hair tonight or whatever. It's like the lame, lame excuse and you can see right through it. So the unrequited invitation moves on to other people. And that list is an interesting one. See, most of the religious leaders of Jesus' day had forbidden anyone who was blind, crippled, or paralyzed to enter the temple. We even have ancient documents that show that one group called the Essenes interpreted Leviticus 21 to also mean that the poor, the blind, and the crippled would not participate in the Messianic banquet, which was, you know, when God's appointed king finally restored Israel and there was a feast to celebrate. And in Jesus' parable, the host of the great banquet specifically commands that the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame, and then the foreigner and the Gentile be invited to sit at God's table. And the banquet becomes so well populated with society's rabble that there remains no seat for the prim and the proper. Again, this is a story that Jesus tells during a dinner party in the home of a famous religious leader. Jesus is so punk rock. I imagine him, you know, reclining at the table, as the scriptures say he often does, and he's looking around, smiling. Everyone's having a good time. He's checking out the digs. And then he says, this is nice. Who wants to hear a story? It's like, the, oh, oh, here he goes. See, though Jesus' ambition was to use the dinner table as a tool to do justice, he was well aware that it was also being used to do injustice. And of course, ours is a culture in many ways radically different than the world of the first century, and yet the issue of food-related injustice hasn't gone anywhere. I would argue that this is perhaps even more so the case today than it was in the first century. Our problem of food-fueled injustice can be broken up into at least three very broad categories. Excess, oppression, and cruelty. Let's start with excess. 
Let me throw a bunch of stats at you guys. Bear with me. According to a recent USDA study, more than 130 billion pounds of food with a value in excess of $160 billion was uneaten in a given year. That's 31% of the available food supply that went straight into the trash. Roughly 50% of all produce in the United States is thrown away every year. And before you brag about your home garden, uh, apparently recent estimates argue 11 billion pounds of excess food is grown but never consumed in America's home and community gardens every year. And there are a number of complicated factors that contribute to this problem. One is that we make too much food, and the other is that we expect, quite unrealistically, that food should always be as fresh and as beautiful as possible at all times. Another reason is that it's relatively cheap here compared to much of the world, and as a result, we have lost a sense of humble gratitude for food itself. Because food is everywhere, especially in a city like Portland. And when food becomes little more than like a luxurious fashion accessory, when you're used to getting the best of the best of the best, when it becomes a trend, it becomes nearly impossible to remember food as a gracious gift of a generous God in a world where food is often scarce and where many people go without. In his book, Food and Faith, A Theology of Eating, Norman Wurzba writes this, when people understand creation as the concrete manifestation of God's sacrificial love, then it is an imperative that food production and consumption recognize and honor the costly grace of life. Now, don't get me wrong. Going out to eat with friends is great. Planting a garden is awesome. Buying produce is good. You should do those things. But Jesus intends for his disciples to live simply, to understand all that they have as a gift and to treat it as though it weren't theirs to keep but to share and to do justice with our resources. And that goes for food as well. There's a grave danger in taking food for granted because when we take food for granted, it becomes easier and easier to just waste it. We fail to realize that the things we eat, the food that we buy, came from somewhere and there's a story behind every single meal. And it's often a story of oppression. A few years ago, if you've been around for a while, we began this ongoing discussion here at Bridgetown, actually, about a sinister reality of the fashion industry. The clothes that we buy are often the products of slavery, forced labor, child abuse, human trafficking, and I'm sure many of you know well enough, the same is true of much of the food that we buy as well. According to the State Department's annual report on human trafficking, tens of millions of men, women, and children are trafficked into slavery every year. Many of those victims are then later forced to work in agriculture and food processing. Child labor is particularly widespread in coffee cultivation. Uh, up to 40% of coffee farming in Honduras and Brazil is done by children exclusively. Forced labor also per permeates the cocoa farms where our chocolate begins. The same is even true of the tea industry, apparently, I read this week. Shrimp farms and processing plants in Thailand are heavily reliant on slave labor. Forced labor, including debt bondage, also continues to sustain palm oil plantations in Malaysia and Indonesia. Palm oil is this thing that's used in lots of processed food, like Dunkin' Donuts, Girl Scout cookies, a whole range of things. Labor reports even document cases of enslaved migrants working in Florida's tomato industry right here in the States. 
Now, if you're thinking, well, geez, what the heck? How am I supposed to do anything about all of that? I can't possibly track the history of every single thing I eat. But really, forget trying to track every single thing you eat. Let's just consider the idea of beginning to consider the origin of just some things that we eat. Let's start there. Because the question I pose is not unlike the one we ask when we evaluate fast fashion. If we learn that our purchases are directly contributing to injustice and oppression in the world, should we, as faithful disciples of Jesus, continue to make those purchases? Or will our shopping and eating habits have to change? Because it's not just human beings that are victimized by the food industry. Creation itself pays a terrible price in order to satisfy the reckless ingratitude of our eating habits. And this results in cruelty. And now I know this is a divisive subject, so just hang on for a bit. I want you guys to bear with me. I'm not going to ask you to become a vegan or anything, even though the cupcake looks great. I'm sure it tastes wonderful. Um, but I think many, have, uh, many of us have come to understand creation, and in particular animals, as little more than objects for human appetites. So dogs and cats are here because we like pets, and other animals are here so we can eat them. But in the story of the scriptures, God's original intention for creation for animals had nothing to do with human appetites. In the garden, we didn't eat animals. And listen, even after the garden, we were initially forbidden from eating animals until after the flood story. Before we got here, my point is that God had skillfully designed animals as an artist creates a masterpiece. And the scriptures often speak of God's concern and affection for animals, believe it or not. And yes, absolutely in the brokenness of a world gone off the rails as a result of evil, animals now suffer and die just like us, and we eat them. Even post-resurrection, Jesus ate some broiled fish. If you know the story, Jesus eats the Passover meal. Paul is fine with eating meat, all that. But listen, the world of farming and fishing in the first century is not the world of the modern-day meat industry and factory farms, a world in which mind-boggling amounts of animals are bred into nightmare suffering for the sake of a meal. And I'm not just talking about killing animals for food. I'm talking about excess, inhumane cruelty and abuse that exploits and objectifies God's creation. I don't think that God is okay with it. Whatever you think about eating animal products, I don't think that God is okay with the way his creation is being treated. I gave up animal products personally years ago. Really stereotypical story. I watched a few shocking documentaries, and I was sold, man. They got me. Um, <laughs> I said, ah! And that was it. <laughs> and it never fails, you know. When I, whenever I invite a friend that's curious, you know, I'm, I'm not, this teaching aside, I'm not going around trying to proselytize the veganism thing, but sometimes I'll have conversations with people, like, oh, I'm curious, how did you come to this decision? I want to know more. And I'll say, if you want to, I can tell you, I can put on the documentary, and without fail, they, don't, they won't do it because they know that what they'll see will convict them, and they don't want to have their Chick-fil-A with a side of guilt or whatever it is. And uh, recently, I have this extended family member of mine who was upset because they were in a, a group text thread with the family, and someone shared this video about the horrors of the dairy industry and, and factory farms. It wasn't me, believe it or not, uh, that shared the video anyway. And this extended family member recoiled, and they said, oh my gosh, how can you show me this? You know I'm an animal lover. To which I replied, well, no, what you love is pets, not animals. So, you know, just imagine your dogs enduring what an animal goes through on a factory farm, if that helps you connect with the material. The point I'm getting at is that I am entirely convinced personally that God's not okay with the way his creation is being treated. And it's not just the animals. Over 37% of methane emissions result from factory farming. That's a lot. 
The fossil fuels used in energy transportation and synthetic pesticides and fertilizers emits 90 million tons of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere every year. Industrial agriculture sucks up 70% of the world's fresh water supplies, and the EPA estimates that this makes for 75% of all water quality problems in the U.S. Water polluted from ag agricultural runoff can destroy whole ecosystems. It can be toxic, if not lethal, to humans and animals alike. In the United States alone, over 260 million acres of forests have been cleared out to make room for crop fields, most of which are used exclusively to grow livestock feed to satiate our incredible demand for meat. The environmental degradation contri contributes to global warming, which furthers famine all around the world, which affects the hungry in the developing world. And here in the United States, the U.S. government subsidizes unhealthy crops and farming practices, which makes healthy food increasingly inaccessible to the poor. It's all the very cruel cycle. And listen, now I know things just got really intense. I have a few more jokes coming, don't worry. It's going to lighten things up. You'll love them. <laughs> don't tune me out, and don't feel discouraged or overwhelmed. I know those are a lot of statistics and everything. I really don't believe that every disciple of Jesus has to become a vegan, or that they have to go and plant their own garden, or harvest their own coffee beans, or whatever. But listen, I do believe that every disciple of Jesus is called to sacrifice their own comfort in order to follow Jesus well. And if that changes the way that we understand food, then we can, we, we can plug our ears and ignore the world around us. La, 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 I'm not going to listen to any of that. Or we can submit to the way of Jesus in every aspect of our lives. Not every disciple of Jesus has to go vegan or has to open a food bank, but every disciple of Jesus is called to care for the poor and, and to care for God's creation. And I think that will inevitably change the way that we eat and the way that we shop for food. So before we end tonight, I want to suggest just a few basic pragmatic steps forward in breaking our food's relationship with injustice and finding ways to use food to do justice instead. And the first is really quite simple. Just remember everything you eat has a story. A while back, I was encouraging someone, a friend of mine, to favor the coffee chocolate ice cream at Ben & Jerry's over the popular local ice cream joint because the coffee and cocoa at Ben & Jerry's is always certified fair trade. And this person was like, oh, Ben & Jerry's is not cool, though, you know, or whatever. And they're like, um, and this place over here, everything's local. But, you know, that's just not true. It, it turns out we grow and harvest our coffee and cocoa beans elsewhere in the world. Everywhere you go, everything you order, every restaurant at which you eat has a story. So ask yourself, is that story a story of injustice? Did the making of your food contribute to goodness, wholeness, and human flourishing, or did it contribute to something else? And if the answer is something else, would Jesus ask you to reconsider that meal? Ask him. See what he says. That snack, that drink, that restaurant, that brand. And that may seem daunting, I get it, but it can be done, really. You don't have to change everything overnight. Just start asking questions. Start doing a little research. Make adjustments. Food documentaries, I realize, are all the rage at the moment. I couldn't possibly keep up with everyone that comes out every week. But if you want some entry-level material, uh, Food Choices has a lot on the food industry, the way that it affects the environment, sustainability, and the poor. And if you can muster up the courage, uh, for the, it's not for the faint of heart, Earthlings, which is narrated by none other than Joaquin Phoenix, get excited about that, is the mother of all exposés on the meat industry. Now, 
I realize not everyone's choices and changes will look exactly the same. Like I said, you know, Gerald outed me with the spoiler alert. I'm a, I'm a vegan personally, but I have friends who share the same exact convictions, who want to follow Jesus well, and they still eat animal products, but they only buy animal products from brands and establishments that they can research and have some peace of mind that the animals were treated ethically, never anything from factory farms. Does this eliminate a ton of options? Yes, I'm afraid it does. And I get it, man. It's tough. I'm right there with you. Don't think that I think it's easy. I, I don't, you think I don't want to eat a Reese's cup? Are you nuts? They're delicious. Have you had one of those things? But I don't want to contribute to slavery or to animal cruelty, so I don't eat the delicious Reese's cup. It is a struggle, man, an intense struggle. If anything, I feel as though this gives me some level of credibility as tonight's teacher. So if you leave and you're like, ah, that guy was nuts, but you got to give it to him. He can say no to a Reese's cup. Man, that's intense. <laughs> that was one of the jokes that I promised was on the way, by the way. <laughs> I hope that, I hope everyone feels better. So Google things. Do your research. There's a tremendous amount of material out there. It's terrifically easy to come by. Look for the fair trade label. That's an easy way to start with your coffee and your chocolate. You know, one step at a time, small adjustments. The next suggestion is to embrace simplicity even with food. I think this applies if you're a parent of five kids or if you're a bachelor who lives alone and, you know, you don't know how to boil noodles. When, when you begin to read about inherent problems in the food industry, one thing becomes increasingly clear. Many of those problems are connected to the fact that we simply make and buy too much food. And so the environment pays a cost. The animal kingdom pays a cost. And in the end, much of the resultant food just gets thrown out. So be mindful buy the food that you need, and then eat it. Enjoy it. Guilt-free. Don't buy more than you need. Don't throw out the zucchini just because it has one small blemish. Replace waste with gratitude. Remember that food comes at a cost, that many go without, that you're lucky to have any at all, and with that gratitude in your heart and your mind, enjoy your food. If you don't want to give up animal products, honestly, you can still make a tremendous difference simply by eating less of them. Track your own trends of wastefulness and adjust your shopping habits. But both of those suggestions have to do with refraining from something. So let me end with a call to action. Given that we realize how much injustice is created by the production of food, one of the most subversive things I can think of for the disciple of Jesus to use food is to use food to actively do justice instead. So this week, when you get together with your community, you'll go to practicingtheway.org and you'll begin to think through some changes that you might make to your shopping and eating habits, as well as brainstorming ideas on how you might come together to do justice with food instead. And lucky for us, the opportunities are actually innumerable. One suggestion is that you could fast together as a community on a day or evening, whatever works for you. Then take the money that you would have spent on the food and donate it to a charitable organization that feeds the hungry. You could volunteer or donate to Lift Urban Portland, which is a popular food bank here in the city. Participate right here in First Baptist. Uh, they have a drop-in ministry to serve meals to the houseless and low-income people in Portland. Happens every week. You could volunteer at one of the missions. You could participate in a food drive. You could donate to a food bank. You could sponsor a child overseas. I learned this week that uh, Portland Parks and Rec has a free lunch and play program that provides food for kids who depend on a school lunch during the year, and then they go without during the summer. This is a great way to be involved. That's in the practices as well. You could adopt, like we were saying earlier, a refugee family and eat with them. You could bring a foster child into your home and you could feed them at your table, which is beautiful. 
You can do what Jesus actually proposed and throw a party just to invite the poor, the blind, and on down the list. And that sounds like a long shot, but man, just imagine what that would be like. That's incredible. At any rate, those are just a few ideas. Maybe you have a different one. You can do some research. It'd be tremendously easy to find more opportunities. The point is that there are all sorts of ways to do justice with food well within the reach of most budgets and most seasons of life. You could simply, here's an easy one, find someone in need of a meal, buy them that meal, and then sit and eat with them. This could be someone that you pass on your way to work or someone that you know personally that, you know, has a tight budget, whatever it might be. If you're not sure how you'd have such an opportunity, naturally, you could just ask God for one and then keep your eyes peeled. You could take a stranger and make them a friend armed with nothing but food as your weapon. For years, uh, I traveled around the world as a musician, which meant that like for months and months out of every year, I was in and out of every major city in the country. And over the years, I wavered in my reaction to folks that you meet in urban areas who walk up asking for something, money or food or bus passes or whatever it might be. I'm sure I don't have to educate you guys on the complicated conundrum of issues of houselessness and poverty and mental illness, addiction, injustice, terribly complicated. But every single night, um, almost without fail, I'd meet someone who would ask for something. They'd just walk up and say, hey, can you help me with this? Money for food, you know, bus tickets, whatever it might be. So eventually I took to just saying, like I had a formulaic structure to how I'd respond. I'd say like, oh, hey, listen, if you're hungry, I'll buy you something to eat. That's all I'm doing. That, you know, that was the thing. Um, and some of them would walk away uninterested, and sometimes I'd buy someone a sandwich or something like that. And of course, uh, I wasn't leading uh, a lavish lifestyle myself, so one night in uh, what I believe was Detroit, I was approached by this gentleman who called himself Papa Smurf, <laughs> and, uh, and he wanted money for food, and I honestly, at that time, did not have any money, um, but I had some groceries in our van, so our van was parked on this busy street next to some dive, it's dusk, Papa Smurf and I climb into the van, doors open to let the cool evening air in, and I make us a couple of sandwiches out of a cooler, And we talked. He told me about his family. He told me about being estranged from his children. We talked at length about Jesus. Um, And when he had first approached me, he was little more than an issue that I'd learned to deal with. I had a formula, and this is what I did every single time. But in those moments that followed, because I didn't have the money to just say, oh, here's a sandwich, have a nice night, because he had to get in, I had to sit with him and make him a sandwich. we, he wasn't just another aggravation of life on the road and being in a city. He wasn't a mark. He wasn't a target for my evangelism. We were just two dudes eating sandwiches in a van. I had no agenda. Um, we, were, we had lives that were in some ways similar, in other ways wildly different. And at the end, he said thanks, and he went on his way. Maybe a story like that seems too ordinary. You know, it doesn't end with Papa Smurf coming to faith that I know of. No nonprofits were founded, no movements initiated, no hashtags. But think of the stories of Jesus eating and drinking. Aren't most of them similarly ordinary in that way? They detail the events of an isolated incident, and what unfolds therein is wonderfully simple. We don't really read about incredible movements that happen later as a result. Uh, For years, I actually lived just up the road in northwest Portland, and I skateboarded to the Bridgetown office every single morning, and I would actually steer around people sleeping on the streets every day on my way to work. So one evening I had a friend visiting from out of town and we took a walk in the evening to get Chinese food. And I was, I was stepping over sleeping bag after sleeping bag on the walk without missing a beat, just talking. And she was choking back tears. 
And I was like lost in conversation talking and I turned around and realized that she was still way back here. She had knelt before this gentleman and she was saying, are, are you hungry? Do you need water? Do you know where the shelter is? And I was thinking, man, this, there's going to be dozens of these people on the way. This is going to take forever. But then I remembered, oh right, there's still people to her. And that haunting moment lingered in my mind. So the next night, I'm out on a walk. I went to get a slice of pizza. I had two of them. They're good. You know, like, they're big. Slices of pizza, they're good. You need two. <laughs> and, uh, and then I walked by someone, and so I gave them one of my two slices of pizza. Nothing fancy, nothing out of the ordinary. And that is what I think one gritty dimension of what we've been calling radically ordinary hospitality. Hey, you like food. I like food. I have some extra food. Do you want some of that food? And in that simple gesture, really, listen, in that gesture, you mock Satan because the enemy laughs at God when he says, look how I turn your good things against you. Your food gets wasted. Your people are selfish. Your world is ravaged. Your creation, your animals, your environment are all being abused. And then we, the church, band together. We regroup. We stand up and we say to Satan, and we will yet find ways to do good, eating and drinking. Would you guys stand up with me as we pray and invite God's Spirit to come and speak over us?